your Bibles and make your way to Numbers, chapter 33. Believe it or not, we're going to try to finish up the book of Numbers tonight and put the book of Numbers to bed for now. (laughs) I know how you meant that. I mean, we want to get into Joshua. We want to get into this land. We've been wandering around with them for almost 40 years. (laughs) Or so it may seem sometimes in that book of Numbers. Now, Father God, as we turn our hearts toward heaven to consider things which only the Spirit can reveal, we pray that the Holy Spirit would indeed open the eyes of our understanding, help us to hear with spiritual discernment the things that you have for us tonight to grasp and to understand and to put into practice In Jesus' name, amen. It's a happy day with all of these Hebrews wandering around in the desert no more, for they are perched on the precipice ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Proverbs 13, 19 says, A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And so there's a lot of happiness with two million Jews who are pretty tired of living from tent Uh, site to tent site, and to put down roots in a land which God gave them, the promised land. So let's pick up where we left off, because the Lord has been preparing them for that crossing the Jordan to take Jericho and then be an Israel proper. It shall not be Canaan any longer, but Israel. Now he's got some um, preparation for them to consider. Verse 50 I'm I'm sorry here. Yeah, verse 50. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute by land, by lot, according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs, distributed according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. Well, them fighting words. <laughs> and, and why? Because... Because why? He loves them, and he just said, for your own sake, I'm giving you some advice. You might want to not adulterate your worship. Keep your heart right before me in purity. And so now, really, tonight, the Lord's remarks here from 3350 all the way to 36, chapter 36, are are remarks to get them ready so that they can dwell in unity and peace and enjoy the inheritance that God has given them. Now, they're going to get there, and he wants them to actually enjoy being there. 
So he's going to bring up some things that will be very helpful to bring peace and blessing and cooperation and um, contentment. And so really, these closing remarks of this chapter, let's just kind of, I'll give you kind of the outline, and then we'll touch upon each of them. The closing verses here in chapter 33 is, clear the land of pagan influences that would compromise your relationship with me. All right? And then the next chapter, chapter um, 34, God gives the boundaries of Israel proper. He gives the borders, and he expects them to possess it. And we're going to talk about that. It's a gift, but they need to enter and do the work to make it their own. And then in chapter 35, the first half is the pastors, the Levites, need to be settled. You'll remember that they don't have any inheritance. They don't have land of their own. And so the Lord is going to settle them, make sure that they know they have to provide a place for their pastors. And the last half of 35 We're going to read about six cities of refuge, established safe havens for people who committed uh, involuntary manslaughter. And uh, the last chapter, Numbers 36, is just 13 verses. We are going to get there, a closing thought of legal considerations about property rights there in Israel. So really, the key ideas, if you're taking notes, to simplify what I just said is, one, these are important when you get over into Israel. One, the unadulterated worship of God. Two, the aggressive obedience to possess the fullness of what God's promised them, the promised land. Three, the necessity of pastoral care. And four, and finally, the emphasis of mercy and justice in the land. So, first of all, The text that I just read to you, a word to the wise, keep your worship unadulterated. Here, after all of this work, you're going to get into the land. And if you don't keep your hearts right with me, that everything will be ruined. And so he's saying, watch out for spiritual booby traps from the pagan neighbors in the land. And so it's incredible to me that writings around 1300 BC from Moses and then writings from James dated at 45 AD can dovetail and be saying the same thing. It's actually from Sunday's sermon, it's the same idea. True religion is this, says James. 1300 years later, he's saying it's to keep yourself from being polluted from the world. This is the point of this of these verses here, some 1,300 years before James. But see, the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It's God-breathed. It's not, it doesn't have its origin in men. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says that. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is alive and active. It's not just mere words on a page. It's a living thing that gets inside of you and does work. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. And so I I shouldn't be so amazed that James and Moses could be dovetailing, which they do. So what are they saying? Well, 
What was true for God's people following Moses is even more true for God's people following Jesus. Moses is saying here, keep your relationship with God pure. Do not pollute yourselves. Do not commit spiritual adultery. And that's exactly what James is saying as well for Christian believers. Here's the paraphrase of what we just read. Put distance between you and the Canaanite. Evict them from your lives. Smash down their shrines. Rip up their altars. Melt down their idols. Burn their carvings. Level the hills where they set up their shrines. Get rid of every hint of that devilish worship. Now, here's a picture of the Ashereth pole. It was all around, and it marked places where you could go into the temple, shrine, and worship this goddess of sex, and there was temple prostitution, and that was, they were everywhere, and so that plus all the other, you can keep that up for a second, um, with the other icons and, and relics and altars and charms and statues and beads and incense and practices, He says, you're going into a place, I want some distance between you and those who will corrupt you because bad company corrupts good morals. A New Testament truth being shown in foundational principle here in the Old Testament. He says, your relationships have to be edifying or they'll ensnare you and pull you down. And their relics, the things that they worship, get rid of them from sight. Destroy them, grind them into powder, whatever form they take. I want you to take care of that or they're going to ensnare you. The relationships will drag you down and the relics will also point you in the wrong direction. He knows very well the vulnerability of the human heart to worship things. I mean, they've already been shown to be vulnerable to idolatry, the golden calf in Exodus 32, and then that terrible time at Baal Peor and Numbers 25 when the soldiers went into the temple shrines with the prostitutes. And he's saying, you know, for your own sakes, you know, Hebrews having come out of the Egyptian culture were particularly vulnerable to worshiping things that the Egyptians worshiped, and so to us, the church... Ecclesia in the Greek means to be called out of and separated unto God where we get the word holy. And and he says you're called out from them to be separate, but you have to be careful about being ensnared. Now listen to this New Testament truth here. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers in an unhealthy way. How can righteousness be partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony is there between Jesus and the devil? For it's written, God speaking, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and be separate from them. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So thank you for Asherah and the statue there. So Hebrews were to clear the land, and according to 2 Corinthians 6, which I just read to you, 
Christians are to clear their hearts and lives and relationships. Now, there's a difference between reaching out to an unbeliever in need and befriending them as a ministry and yoking up and partnering them. And you know in your own heart because of the effect that they have on you. Do you leave that relation colder toward Christ, more compromised? Or do they leave the relationship uplifted and pulled closer to God? And so you have to be careful about this. Uh, Moses says, if you go soft on this, if you leave the inhabitants there, if you leave some of their ashtara poles up, they will become burrs in your eyes and thorns in your side. Reading an old school uh, commentator uh, calling some of our pet sins, darlings, our darlings. And he said, we must, by God's good grace and power, murder our darlings. Now, everybody usually has one or two darling sins. And they usually have something to do with sex or something to do with drugs or alcohol or something to do with money. And there's a host of other ones, all related to that. But those are the big ones that people usually struggle with. And he says, you can have it together, and here we go to James chapter 1 again. You can have it together in all these other areas. But if you, don't, if you have a little high place, now the high place was uh, where they would put their shrines so that everybody in the city could look up on the hill and say, oh, there it is. So when he says destroy and level their high places, he's saying go to those hills that they've erected their shrine upon and level that thing. And so um, those things would become hurtful. And, and it's crazy. If you don't murder your darlings, your darlings will find a way to murder you. That's his point. God's not saying, you know what, I'm just a killjoy. I don't want anybody to have fun. He's saying, you know what? Have you ever had a burr in your eye? Have you ever had a thorn in your side? For your own good, for your own welfare, stay away from the things that corrupt and defile. And those things corrupt and defile. And all you have to do is be a pastor for about 25 or 30 years to see the burrs and the thorns in people's lives who have uh, gone ahead and worshipped those things and sinned in those ways. And he says, you know, you'll become blind. And you know what? If, if you had thorns in your side, you'll never know rest. You just can't rest. You'll never have peace. And people who pursue those kinds of things, they don't have soul rest. They don't have a quiet heart. They don't have a clean conscience. You will never know that. That's the understanding of a thorn in your side there. A contemporary understanding, and then we move on because we've got a lot to cover. I like this. Could you guys just not consult psychics like they do? Can you, can you not check your horoscope? Can you not watch porn? Can you not worship youth and beauty and pleasure and fame and fortune like they do? Can you please refrain from getting drunk, loving money, worshiping cars made of metal and clothes and jewelry and houses? 
Could you not watch vile things and sing vile songs and entertain and recreate yourself to death? Please don't hang out with folks who do these things and rid your lives of things that stumble you or you will pay the price yourself. You have to be careful. And then the little P.S. Or go ahead and then I will end up doing to you what I plan to do to them. Now, they left the poles up. And they left the Canaanites in the land, some of them. And exactly what God promised happened. And there was an Assyrian exile and a Babylonian exile, the 700s and then the 500s, and they were gone, taken. The Jews were out. They were in, taken to Iraq, where they lived for 100 years. They would not be able to enjoy the blessing of what was given to them because of their sin. And so God says, you know, watch out for your own life. Zero tolerance with that stuff. That's why the New Testament says crucify those things. Not just, you know, beat, beat them up pretty bad. You know, the things in our hearts and the high places in our own thinking in our lives. Don't just give it a beating and don't just turn your back on it. He says, crucify those things or they will come back to haunt you. Uh, next chapter, turn the page. No, you don't have to turn the page, some of you. You're already, some of you do. 1 through 12. So keep your worship unadulterated and now take full possession of what I've given you. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, command the Israelites and say to them, when you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance, will have these boundaries. Here are the boundaries. All four sides now. Your southern side will include some of the desert of Zin along the border of Edom. On the east, your southern uh, boundary will start from the end of the Salt Sea cross south of the Scorpion Pass, continue on to Zin, and go south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it will go to Hazar, Adar, and over to Asmon, where it will turn, join the Wadi. A Wadi is a gully or gulch of Egypt and end at the sea. Your western boundary will be the coast of the Mediterranean. This will be your boundary on the west. That was an easy one. For the northern boundary, run a line from the Great Sea to Mount Or, from Mount Or to Lebo, Hamath. Then the boundary will go to Zadad, continue to Zephron, Zephron, and end at Hazar Enon. This will be your boundary on the north for your eastern boundary. Run a line from Hazar Enon to Shephem. The boundary will go down from Shephem to Rebla on the east side of Ein. And continue along the slopes east of the Sea of Kinnereth, which is Old Testament Hebrew for the Sea of Galilee. Kinnereth, Chenaroth in the Hebrew to be shaped as a harp because the lake, the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp. Then the boundary will go down along the Jordan and end at the Salt Sea. This will be your land with its boundaries on every side. Here's the map. Very, very close. Very, very close. They do not possess everything that's here, but they're close. Now, very interesting. 
Borders is not, is not boring because it's in the headlines every day. Every day we hear about the boundaries. Every day you hear about chapter 34 from 3,500 years ago, the fighting and the... And why? Do you know how big that piece of land is? It's as big as New Jersey. Why is it the headlines? It's the center of the world. It joins three continents. God said, I want to put my people where I'm going to bring the Savior of the world and the Holy Scriptures right at the center where everything comes together. And you couldn't go anywhere in the world without passing through that region. And God says, that's where I want the gospel. I want the gospel and his timetable. Everything about the plan of God is there. What's crazy is, can you imagine if there were, was no Israel? And I got up and I had to read this. And there's no Israel. There's no state of Israel. And it wasn't there until 1948. And now there is, shaped just like this says, like a little, um, what's the shape? A marquee cut gem. And that's the shape that it's supposed to have. Now in the millennial kingdom, the borders are way bigger. But for here and now, and according to this chapter, this is where they have. Now you will see. This is called the West Bank. And Israel says, that's ours. And the Palestinian Authority says, no, it isn't. But Israel controls it. The Gaza Strip here, Israel says, that's ours too. But the Palestinian Authority says, no, it's not, it's ours. The Golan Heights up here, Syria says, that's ours. Israel says it really should be ours, but we're going to let you have it for now. <laughs> According to this, the Golan Heights are, does belong to Israel. According to this, the West Bank is theirs. According to this, it's exactly like this, except there's no brown here or here. The land, according to this, goes to Israel. So you can leave that up while I'm talking about this. Um, I like, first of all, you to see that the, the text says when you cross into Israel, not if you do. God's election and his predestination of his people is an encouraging um, uh, doctrine for all of us that God has uh, predestined and ordained that they will get into that land. And then thousands of years later, boom, there it is. Just like when he says to us, listen to some of these promises for the church. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. John, that was First Peter chapter 1. John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place, a land to promise that, that where I am, you will be also. Not, not if, but when. 
You see, 2 Corinthians 1.22, he says, He has set his seal of ownership upon us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's this doctrine, this crazy doctrine that's going to take slaves out of Egypt and say, I'm going to, I'm going to plug you into this place. You're totally helpless. You have nothing but chains to bind you. And I'm going to gift you this inheritance Take it, it's yours. And he expects them, and this is the second point, really. He expects them to occupy that. He gives them freely this place. Here are your borders. Take it. Work it. Look, I'm sending you to college. I'm going to pay your way completely. Free room and board. I'll provide you tutors, but you're going to have to do the work. So there's something for the Israelites to do, even though it's all by grace, it's all done, it's already um, predestined to happen, just like us. We have a job to do. There, we have to cooperate. And what has he given us? All of these blessings in Christ. What is my heritage in Christ? Have I fully possessed what I have been given? Maybe what, 1%? I don't know, hopefully more than 10%. You have been blessed with a spiritual inheritance in Christ. Just like this, he says, in Christ, here's your land. Take it now, Christian. And we spend our life's journey occupying the land. And a lot of us fall short just like this and say, well, maybe if I compromise and say, maybe I shouldn't have this and I, and I won't go all the way with the Lord and I'll, I'll keep some high places and I'll compromise here. What, where are their biggest trouble spots coming from? Their biggest trouble spots are coming here, here, and here. That's the most deadly attacks coming. The more that they give away from what God has said to have, the more trouble they bring upon themselves. And it's the same way with us. So what has he said to you? The fruit of the Spirit is yours. Love, joy, peace, brotherly kindness, patience. That's yours. Are are you embracing that? Are you using that? Are you seeing that in your life? Spiritual weapons that demolish strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, do you use them? The privilege of going to God as, your, as a dearly loved daughter or son to the throne room of grace, gifts and callings to serve, joy and trouble, peace and storms, wisdom from God to face any challenge, love and compassion to serve. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. That's The boundaries, he's saying, this is yours. You don't have a spirit of fear. That doesn't belong to you. Unless, of course, you don't go all the way and you stop short like this and sell off part of the the promise. Are you going to take the land? It's only done by the power of the Holy Spirit and by grace and by leaning into him anyway. Yes, we get that. 
But what we forget is we've got to occupy, we've got to possess and make ours what he has freely given. How much your job is to see. How much of what God has given me will I expand into and possess for myself. Your gifts, your callings, to hit the bullseye. When God thought of you, knitting you together in your mother's womb, he gave you gifts and abilities and he predestined life to happen. And he wants you to hit the bullseye. But don't have little portioned portioned off areas in your life that says, you know what, I just can't do it, it's too hard, and I'll make too many enemies, or whatever it is, the reason that you don't do that. All right, so um, moving on. Joshua's not going to be able to settle the land uh, by himself, so uh, verses 13 through 19, Moses commanded the Israelites to sign this land by lot as an inheritance. The Lord has ordered that it be given to the nine and a half tribes. The two and a half have already negotiated land on the Transjordan side, east of the Jordan. Um, Because of the families of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance, and then so on. Here are their names. The point of this section is that Moses is the leader, he's passing that on to Joshua, and that God raises up men, gifts them, calls them to support the lead pastor who's leading. All right, let's move on. So um, we've seen God saying, in essence, keep your worship unadulterated, cooperate with me and fully possess what I've given you, and now make room for the pastors, Thirty, uh, chapter 35, verses 1 through 5. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess, and give them pasture lands around the towns. Then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands for their cattle flock, flocks and all their livestock. The pasture lands around the towns that you give the Levites will extend out 1,500 feet from the town wall. Outside the town, measure 3,000 feet. On the east side, 3,000 on the south side, 3,000 on the west, 3,000 on the north, with the town in the center. They will have this area as pasture lands for the towns. All right. Let's stop and make some comments there. As you recall, the priests from the Levi family would have no land deal. Why? Because they were busy serving full-time the Lord in the, in the uh, tabernacle, and also God wanted these people, even though that they didn't have land, to have a place to live. The pastors needed a place to live. They couldn't cultivate the land, and they couldn't homestead the land. They had to be cared for because they had a full-time job. It wasn't as if the Levites, or the pastors, let's call them, um, couldn't lend a hand in what was happening. But if they did have to build a house and have concerns with a secular job, they couldn't do what God had called them to do. And God conveniently puts them in 48 cities throughout the 12 tribes. And so he sprinkles them all over to keep um, spiritual uh, truth and to keep the, the Hebrews on the straight and narrow. He's essentially just saying, 
I've called them. I've gifted them. They have a job to do. Uh, you benefit spiritually from their work, so help them to do their job. And this is the basis, of course, for the New Testament um, uh, care and support for full-time uh, ministers and those who do the gospel work. I like what uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6 says, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, in the same way that the Old Testament priests were supposed were supported by the ministry and the people who benefited from their ministry, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And, and, and I do, and I appreciate that. Um, it, took, it takes 20 hours for me to prepare a Sunday morning sermon. That is half your normal work week if you work 40 hours. That is half the work week goes to one task, Sunday morning teaching. There is no way I could do what I do or any pastor do what they do if they had to work. So God says, that is your job, and you are to be supported. And that's what, so, so they were saying, look, who are they? You know, if we give them a little stall, that means we have less. But he's saying, they have a job, they serve me, they're serving you, and they're going to be in your communities. Give them space. Help them to do their job. That's what this section is about. So I'd like to repeat this as we go, because we've got one more thing to talk about. Really two, but one is just a real quick one. Keep your worship unadulterated. Cooperate with me to fully possess what I've given you. Make room for the pastors. And lastly, remember mercy and justice. All right, are you ready to breeze through here now? We're going to read about the, um, yes, the cities of refuge. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. The towns you give the Levites from the land the Israelites possess are to be given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many, take many towns from a tribe that has many, but few from the one that has few. All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, verse 11 here, select some towns to be cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, or the kinsman redeemer, it's the same word, so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. These six towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for the Israelites, aliens, and other people living among them so that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who has killed another accidentally can flee there. Now, if a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill, and he strikes someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. 
the murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill, and he hits someone so that he dies, he's a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood, the kinsman redeemer, shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or, or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He's a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him, drops a stone on him that could kill him. I don't know how you do that unintentionally. But I mean building. They're probably building. That's a building thing. <laughs> Whoops. And then, he, and then he dies. Then since he was not his enemy and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who, is anoint, who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of the refuge to which he has fled, the avenger of blood finds him outside. The avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. So we get that. You better stay inside the city gates. The accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may return to his own property. We're almost done. These are to be legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a, as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. You do know we get our laws from, the, from this, these writings. That, that, that very statement right there is used today in American uh, courtrooms. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer, so you can't bribe your way out, uh, who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge, and so allow him to go back and live on his own land before the death of the high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Wow, thank you for your patience. We really are going to do this tonight. Now, the last verse here will give you the key to understand the cities of refuge. It says, you know, I dwell here. I don't want this place to be a bloodbath. When people of the... Middle East in ancient days, when somebody would die or be murdered or killed accidentally, I, it was just revenge time. And uh, there was fighting and, and feuding and all of this. And, and the Lord is saying, I don't want Israel to turn into a place like uh, 12, instead of 12 tribes, it would be 12 gangs, you know, and, and it would be gang warfare. It would just be crazy. And he says that that is not going to happen because He's there. Honor killings were just the way that people did things back then. So when blood was shed and lives were lost and tempers were high, 
God had something in mind. They're called cities of refuge. Now, first of all, what I want you to see here is that they were six of them, and you were, they were placed. They're little circles. They're, it should be the last map. It might not be there, but if it's not, that's fine. Um, They're just strategically put. They were placed so that anyone could be there within a day. So they're they're really neatly placed. It's kind of neat to see where God put them because he said, I want everybody to have access to these cities of safe haven. Now, there's no policemen. Here's some context. No jails, no judicial systems to speak of. And so the oldest male of the family had the responsibility called the kinsman redeemer. There they are. And, you know, there's a lot of Judean wilderness in there where not a lot of people were living where there's a kind of a gap. But uh, within one day's reach, most of Israel could get to a a city uh, of refuge. And it really speaks really of Jesus because it's it, cities of refuge is a picture of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that more later. Thank you, Joey. So the kinsman redeemer looked out for the family's rights. And so if the family was wronged, it was the oldest male of the family had to execute judgment to protect the family and also to avenge them of of being wronged and also to redeem the loss sustained by that family. Now, the the death penalty started in uh, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 where it says, You shed the blood of man. By man, your blood will be shed. The death penalty was instituted then and it is still supported today in the New Testament, Romans chapter 13. But the point is, is that The death penalty was a deterrent, and it was a good custom, but sometimes there were accidents. And what about that? Uh, The avenger had a right to see that justice was served, but sometimes it wasn't very clear. And so God wanted to to make a place where uh, people who didn't mean to do harm could be safe from a hot-headed attempt to kill that person. Uh, Let me give you an example of involuntary manslaughter. Barb, my Barb, was engaged at 19 to a young man who tragically went on a hunting trip with friends and was killed inadvertently. That would qualify for somebody, let's say in Keith was his name, his family to go crazy and to kill that man who accidentally shot their brother. A city of refuge was you can flee. You had one day you could get there and you were safe until the witnesses came and the tempers died down and that they could hear the case um, the Roner Park gal, SSU student, recently charged with misdemeanor vehicular manslaughter. She was texting, and she drove over a two-year-old toddler and her mother. The mother lived, but the daughter died. 
Now, you can understand how somebody not in their right mind, crazy, could go after a girl like that or a guy who killed Keith. God says, they didn't do it on purpose. So here's how it would work. Um, If there was an absence of murderous intent or the absence of premeditation, the death was clearly accidental, then the man was not guilty of murder and could not be turned over to the kinsman redeemer. Here's how it worked. They'd go there, they'd be proven innocent, and they would live freely in the safe city. They could never leave. If they did, all bets were off. And until the high priest died, which was interesting. I mean, that could be a long time if he's 27 at the time. But if he's 80, you have a short sentence or a shorter sentence. So the death of the high priest brought freedom. So significantly, someone who killed another but was innocent of murder still had their life profoundly affected. They had to move from their city and away from their family and had to live the rest of their lives in the city of refuge. The tragedy also affected their lives. So there was a sense of justice, too, um, for the family of the person who had died. But the murderer... The murderer, and and verses 16 through 21 really make it vivid for you. He's driving home the point of how gruesome it is. If somebody clubs somebody with a blunt instrument in cold blood, if someone uses an iron weapon to impale them, if someone crushes their skull with with a rock and pushes them off a cliff, that's the kind of language he says he's a murderer And he will be put to death because it's like deicide. We were made in the image of God. And when somebody picks up a rock and says, I'm going to kill you, God says, you will forfeit your life for that because that person is in the image of me. You forfeit your life. Now, real quick, Jesus is really the city of refuge. Both Jesus and the city of refuge is within easy reach of needy person. Um, Secondly, both Jesus and the city of refuge are open to everybody, not just the Israelite. Whoever is in need or fearful would not be turned away. Both Jesus and the city of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries to go outside meant death. Both Jesus and the city of refuge Full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. When, when Jesus, who is our high priest, dies, we're freed. It's the same picture here as well. But a crucial distinction, the book of Hebrews says that, and I love this quote, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. Jesus is better than the city of refuge in this, that both the guilty and the innocent of a crime can go to him. And not just the murderer can go to him, you see. And so he is better. Let's finish the book of Numbers, and let me read these 13 verses for you, and I'll make one comment. That might have a couple subpoints, but it will still be one comment. No, seriously, it's just one thought here. 
The family heads, chapter 36, verses 1 through whatever it is, 13. The family heads of this clan, dot, 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 came and spoke before Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelite families. They said, now Moses, when the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brothers, Elophehad, you remember him, to his daughters. Now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes, then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our forefathers. Then at the Lord's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what the Lord commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within the tribal clan of their father. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe may must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of his fathers. No inheritance may pass from tribe to tribe, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land in inheritance. So the daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. All five married their cousins on their father's side. Ooh. <laughs> they married within the clans of the descendants, their distant cousins. It's a big tribe, way distant. Lord willing. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's clan and tribe. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. We are done with the book of Numbers. And I'm sorry, you know, I should have divided that into three or four sermons. However, I really want to get to Joshua chapter 1, don't you? Now, let me, can I just explain what happened just there real quick, and then I'll let you go. Remember back a few chapters, five Jewish girls came to Moses and said, Moses, we got a problem. Just because we're girls, we don't have any brothers. You're parsing out that inheritance, and we don't get anything because we're girls. We don't have a brother. Our father died. He wasn't one of the bad boys, but he's dead. And now, fine, we don't get anything because we're girls. Moses went to the Lord and said, what's up with that? And the Lord said, give him the land. And so from then on, women could inherit. Single daughters could be sole property owners. Here's the problem. Because when you resolve one problem, you can create another one. And here was the problem that wouldn't make peace in Israel, and that's why it had to be addressed. The, the woman from her tribe would marry a guy from another tribe. And all my earthly goods I thee endow. Her land would go to him. And now he has a right to her land. But he's from another tribe. 
Well, that's not going to work. So what are we going to do? So the Lord says, you know what? You can't have everything. And when there's a problem and you negotiate and there's a win, there's a loss usually somewhere. And spiritually mature people understand that. You got your land. You can inherit your, your, your place there. And you were honored. But that's going to mean that if you want to marry and keep your land, you must marry within your tribe. Now, you can go ahead and be free to marry outside of your tribe, but you'll leave your land. You choose. But you can't have it both ways. And you know what, folks? We can't have it all ways. And so when we negotiate, the, the little principle here is to be able to be merciful and do justice and have contentment for the unity of the whole. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your patience of your people. Thank you, Lord, that you have taught us, you have taken us on a journey. And, and Lord, I know I kind of rushed through the ending. Uh, Lord, I, I just thank you for the truths that we have been reading about and studying tonight. I pray that, that your word would speak to our hearts and do the work you sent it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. So we've studied the book of Numbers for about a year, maybe a little bit over a year. I wrote down five thoughts I got out of the book. Real quick, number one, God took slaves and made them promised land people, his own sons and daughters. He taught them how to be ordered, organized, cleansed, and reconciled to him, separated from sin, and blessed how to give, how to be reminded of God's faithfulness and how they could make sure they lived an abundant life in their journey. Two, but they got derailed by sin and unbelief. They murmured, complained, and rebelled. Most of all, they failed to enter into what God had set before them by faith. And a generation fell short of entering God's fullest blessing. Three, the new generation set out toward the promised land again and faced the same challenges, but dealt with them better this time until they made their way to the threshold of the promised land. Four, by spiritual analogy, many Christians die in the wilderness, fall short because they will not trust God. Many are like the two and a half who like to live on the borders. And lastly, finally, from here, they cross the Jordan and face challenges that still need the same hope the same faith, the same courage and obedience, all the way the journey he leads them, and all God is asking for a little cooperation. So, Father, thank you for the book of Numbers. We see ourselves all over it. Thank you, Father. We know that it was written for our edification as well as Paul told us. Help us to take these truths to heart and be blessed on our journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday morning.